Welcome to the Christian Mysticism Podcast, where we explore the fascinating history of Christian mysticism from the early days of the church until today. I'm Alberto de la Cruz, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Carlos Ayer, the T. Lawerson Riggs Professor of History and Religious Studies at Yale University. Welcome back, Carlos. I hope you had a wonderful Easter. Yes, yes. Easter is always wonderful, no matter what. (laughs) It certainly is. Yes. It's always a good time. So at the end of our last episode, you mentioned, Carlos, that you were going to talk a little bit about Dionysios. Yes. Before we get to our next topic. But before we talk about Dionysios, what are we going to be talking about today? Um, We're going to jump... Uh, right into Meister Eckhart, a 14th century German mystic. And um, there's a reason for connecting Dionysius and Meister Eckhart, as our listeners will see very clearly in our conversation as it develops. So tell us more about Dionysius. Dionysius the Areopagite, sometimes known as Pseudo-Dionysius. We don't know who he was. The earliest text found by this person is 6th century. So he's no earlier than the 6th century. No one mentions him either till the 6th, 7th century. But the author has taken on the name of someone who is mentioned in the New Testament. So, and this was common in the ancient and, and into the medieval world that people would assume other identities to make their text more, um, not not necessarily more believable, but to give it greater authority. And this is true. There are many other uh, books from the early centuries of Christian history that didn't make it into the New Testament. But, you know, there's the, there's the Apocalypse of Peter. There's the um, Gospel. Uh, there are so many Gospels with names of apostles that were not attributed to the apostles. So one has to be careful with these early documents. But the thing about Dionysius is it makes him different from these other texts that didn't make it into the New Testament, is that he is the only, the character, the person, Dionysius, is the only Greek that St. Paul manages to convert in Athens. Because um, as soon as he starts talking about resurrection, Oh, the, the the audience that is listening to him gets extremely nervous and upset because the last thing anybody would want to do, so they think, is to um, have a body for eternity. No, the whole purpose of human existence is to transcend the body and not have a body for eternity. But Dionysius um, gets converted. We really don't know anything about this person, but the fact that he was pretending to be a first century Christian, and not only that, first century convert of St. Paul, gave his texts enormous authority. And throughout the Middle Ages, in both the Christian East and the Christian West, Dionysius is quoted so often. And of course, nobody challenges the identity of Dionysius. It's not until the 16th century that the fraud is unmasked. But that's a story for another time, the unmasking of Dionysius. Dionysius wrote four texts, and the most important of those four texts for our purposes here is mystical theology, which is a very, very short treatise. It's just a few pages long, but there is so much crammed in there that is significant that it has a weight that uh, goes beyond the number of pages. And what it is, the mystical theology, is a discussion of how anything, absolutely anything, that we can think of God or anything we can express, say, or write about God is so far from the real thing, falls short, falls immensely short. But more than that, the treatise Mystical Theology, and another treatise he wrote entitled On Divine Names, are the foundation of what in Latin gets called the Via Negativa, 
or the negative way. The Greek word is apophasis, which is to refrain from speaking. And this kind of mysticism is known as via negativa, or the way of negation, or apophatic mysticism. But we don't need to dwell on that term apophatic. More important that we understand, that our listeners understand, that this kind of mysticism assumes that human beings can experience, actually experience, a reality that is so much higher than ours. And we experience it. We can. But the problem comes when you try to explain it, because human language fails. So, for instance, I'll give an example. In uh, the mystical theology, Dionysius uh, says that one must go higher than our conceptions. So, for instance, he speaks of the divine darkness beyond light. And it's amazing how this short treatise sort of gave a stamp, gave a stamp of approval to this very, very abstract conception of what is experienced when one transcends the human material dimension. Dionysius uh, employs terms that will serve as the foundation of many, many other mystical texts. But here's what he admits in the mystical theology. If all the branches of knowledge, and I'm quoting, if all the branches of knowledge belong to things that have being, and if their limits have reference to the existing world, then that which is beyond all being must also be transcendent above all knowledge. Thus, the universal and transcendent cause, you know, the, the divine, must both be nameless and also possess the names of all things in order that it may truly be the universal dominion, the center of creation on which all things depend. For the nameless goodness is not only the cause of cohesion or life or perfection in such a way as to derive its name from this or that providential activity. It contains all things beforehand within itself after a simple, uncircumscribed manner through the perfect excellence of its one and all creative providence. So, you know, this sounds, uh, uh, might sound to some of our listeners as uh, some kind of philosophical word salad, but it's not. It's actually very simple concept. God is beyond anything we can conceive, but he can be experienced. And this is what becomes the, the negative way or way of negation. And this is something that gets picked up through the centuries by different mystics in different ways. And one of these mystics is Meister Eckhart. And the influence is direct because texts written by this Dionysius were available to all medieval theologians and medieval mystics. So we know that the influence is there. And of course, if Meister Eckhart was reading him, Meister Eckhart thought he was reading someone from the first century, from the same time period as the New Testament. Uh, so you can imagine how much of an impact that could have. But Meister Eckhart is, um, Meister is not his first name. That's a title, like Master. Master Eckhart, his first name was probably Johannes or John, and he lived in the 14th century. And he was a Dominican actually uh, had a position of authority within the Dominican order. Born in 1260, became a Dominican when he was 18 years old in 1278. And then he died sometime around 1328 or 1329. So he's very squarely in the 14th century. And what makes him so important as a mystic is not the theology he wrote, because he was a professional scholastic theologian, and he wrote in Latin. His legacy is found in his sermons. He was a very, very popular preacher, so we are told. Pack the house, so to speak, in German-speaking areas. So his sermons were in German, in medieval German, and um, they are the texts in which we find his mystical theology. 
However, as we will see uh, very soon in just a few minutes as we start getting into his mystical theology, he is even harder to understand sometimes than Dionysius. And uh, for decades now, I've wondered how he could be a popular preacher when <laughs> even, even people with doctorates in theology have to really struggle to understand some of the things he says. So that's one of these mysteries. How could he be so popular? But uh, we'll, we'll get to that later in our talk. The most important thing to know to begin with is what makes him unique. And what makes him unique is a concept that he didn't invent. I mean, it's, it's there like a red thread running through practically all mystical texts before him. But he emphasizes it in such a way that he makes it more visible, this concept. And what is that concept? The concept is that inside every human being, there is a spark of the divine, a little bit of divine essence. And that is the ultimate self of every human, is this divine spark or divine reflection. Augustine had that in his theology too. He said that we're all reflections of the Holy Trinity. But Eckhart took that and pushed it forward in, in a very radical way. And uh, as we will see soon enough, uh, he got into trouble for doing this. But anyway, unlike the texts we discussed last time, especially the Cloud of Unknowing, and unlike the Hesychasts in his sermons, Eckhart will not talk about methods of prayer at all. And that's another issue that, that makes him uh, somewhat difficult to understand because he, he writes so intensely about the potential human beings have for experiencing things that are beyond comprehension, but he gives no instructions on how to get there. He didn't give any idea or he didn't write down how he was experiencing these things? No. No, uh, I mean, there are certain concepts that he brings up about how what one needs to be in order to have this experience. But he doesn't recommend any kind of prayer, you know, silent prayer, mental prayer, a vocal prayer, this kind of prayer or that kind of prayer. No, he doesn't. And actually, this is one of the things that might have made him a very popular preacher was really the the core of his message which is that all humans are equally noble and what does that mean well what how are all humans equally aristocrats as he put it it's because of that divine spark which we all have and which we can all turn to so there's a radical equality of the human race in Eckhart's sermons. And if you read them repeatedly, as I have, because I teach them every year in one class or another, I'm bringing up Meister Eckhart and rereading his sermons. If you read them, it's as if he is just assuming his listeners in these sermons will be able to have these experiences. Not once does he say, oh, this is only for, you know, very advanced spiritual people. No. He talks about it as if this is just something that all humans are capable of, of doing. However, he doesn't give you instructions. And, and when I say that, what I mean is, it's not that he, he doesn't have an, any kind of structure to what he's saying. No, he does. But it's just that he doesn't tell you how you can tap into that divine spark. That's interesting because... Of the mystics we've we've spoken about in in prior episodes and the different methods of of achieving mysticism and getting closer to God, they're mostly at least from my understanding they're they were mostly written for for monks and nuns for monastics for that's right for other people. But it appears Meister Eckhart was telling everybody that you have it within you; it's accessible to you. You're born with it. Mm -hmm. You have that divine spark inside, and you too can 
see and experience and become a mystic without having to become a, without moving to a monastery or becoming a monk. That's right. And actually in one of his sermons, well, let me back up a second. He, he has terms that, that, that he uses such as breakthrough, right? As, as a step, a very crucial high step that one can reach when one breaks through to the divine reality. But he says in one sermon that the breakthrough can occur anytime, even while shoeing a horse. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing. But the, the basic terms that he employs, okay, and this, this will give our listeners a better sense of what goes on in his sermons. Step number one to comprehend in his sermons is that one must detach oneself as much as possible from the material world and go inwards towards that divine spark. Well, that's pretty standard. That is very standard, yes. But he, he doesn't go into great detail about how one detaches oneself. Uh, well, all the other all the other mystics we've we've spoken about, they detach themselves by leaving civilization and going yes. to a monastery. Yes, and um, all by fasting, by you know, Be cutting becoming out, hermits. Yeah, cutting out on sleep, cutting out on food, cutting out on everything. Well, Eckhart is using language that speaks more of a achieving a condition of being rather than living a life full of very specific rules and steps for breaking through the term he uses in in german for letting go or letting you know detaching oneself is gelassenheit to just let go let go of attachments attachments are a problem and as long as you're attached you're not going to be able to break through. So would you say Meister Eckhart was not a subscriber to the idea of asceticism? There have been uh, differences of opinion, you know, among experts about this. I'm on the side that thinks, yes, he, he has to. He has to have ascetic principles and practices. He just doesn't talk about them because he's focusing more on the attainment of these things than giving people instructions on how to do it. Because keep in mind, these are sermons. So sermons in the 14th century tended not to be at all like the sermons that Catholics hear nowadays or which Protestants hear in their churches nowadays. They, they were evocative. They, they were supposed to stir people up and to engage them, especially because you know, the ritual was all in Latin. So sermons in German spoken to Germans, they're the one chance that, you know, a cleric like Eckhart has to get through to people. But the, the thing is that also at this time in the 14th century, there were men and women who started to live semi-monastic lives without actually joining monasteries or convents. And why, why that? Well, because for the women, especially, that you had to have a dowry to join a, a convent. And many women came from families that didn't have the money to give a, a dowry to a convent. To make this uh, long story as short as possible, in the area where Eckhart lived and worked, the women were known as Beguines, the men were known as begards, and there's all kinds of disagreements about where these names come from. But some some of these begins and, and, and begards, some lived by themselves, some lived communally, but they didn't take vows like the monks. And they supported themselves by, you know, usually uh, practicing, some, being artisans of one sort or another, making things. Like the Beguines were known for making very fine lace. They still are, especially in, in, in Belgium. But Eckhart preached to Beguines. And there are some uh, Eckhart experts who think that he learned a lot from the Beguines, actually. 
So when, when I hear or read that he was a popular, very popular preacher, the only thing I can imagine is that those he was most popular with were these men and women who lived kind of semi-monastic lives. But it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean that other people didn't attend the sermons and pick them up. But before I go any further, the sermons that survive were not written in Eckhart's hand. People took notes. It was like people were transcribing what he was saying. And, um, you know, when people transcribe, uh, mistakes can be made. And um, later on in his life, as, as we'll see in a, in a few minutes, that caused problems for him. Before you get into that, let me let me ask you, considering what you, you've been saying, that he was a very popular preacher, very popular priest, and very loved, and his message was a positive message. Do we... I, I can't help but to envision, you know, you think of mega churches today and, and you know, to have 10,000 people mm -hmm. attending services and, you know, they're on TV, they have their own networks. And of course, that's today's technology. But I'm thinking, would, would he be like, if he was around today, would, would he be a, a type of priest that would have he could you know, millions of viewers every week watching him on TV and thousands of people attending his Sunday services? It's possible. Certainly. Yeah. Because as, as difficult as some of the concepts that he employs are, what he has to say is, well, the two things at once, as I said before, there's this equality of all human beings, which he preaches. And then the second is the human potential that he preaches. Now, given uh, the way that life is lived today you know if he were a online preacher some of those in the audience who like what he had to say might not be able to uh, experience what he's talking about and there might be some dissatisfaction because this really is hard stuff that he's talking about let me give you examples for instance his sermons are full of extreme statements shocking statements one of my favorites is this, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, all creatures seek God. So it's not just humans, it's all of creation that is seeking God. And in one of his sermons, he actually says that caterpillar you see climbing up a tree trunk is seeking God. And then here's another quote. There is a somewhat in the soul that is as it were, a blood relative of God. And he also says, and I'm quoting, the more that the soul receives of the divine nature, the more it grows like it, and the closer becomes its union with God. It may arrive at such an intimate union that God at last draws it to himself altogether so that there is no distinction left in the soul's consciousness between itself and God, though God still regards it as a creature. And actually, it was statements like this that would get him into trouble with um, the church. And here's one of the more shocking passages. The eye with which I see God is the same with which God sees me. My eye and God's eye is one eye and one sight and one knowledge and one love. Some people heard this and didn't like it. But here's a little more on the substance of his sermons. From him, from Meister Eckhart himself, I'm going to quote him again. He says, whenever I preach, I usually exhort detachment and that humans should free themselves from themselves and from everything. Secondly, that one should become embedded into the onefold good that is God. And thirdly, that one should contemplate the great nobility that God has implanted into the soul, right? The great nobility that God has implanted into the soul so that man or humans come in mysterious ways into God. And fourthly, I preach of the purity of divine nature 
of which light be in divine nature, this is truly ineffable. And that's as close as, as one can come to finding Eckhart reflecting on what he's saying in his sermons. And to me, the question has always been, two questions, actually. People who are writing down these sermons, are they getting everything correctly? <laughs> There's a great chance that they didn't get everything correctly. And uh, number two is how differently he could be understood by different people. Those who write about mysticism, scholars who write about mysticism, call Eckhart's mysticism, uh, and it comes mostly from Germans. Uh, the German word is Wesenmystik, or mysticism of essence, or mysticism of being. And Eckhart would get in trouble. He would be denounced uh, to church authorities, and uh, eventually he would be reprimanded. And he was reprimanded, not by local authorities, but by the Pope in 1329. Pope John XXII issued a papal bull, that's a papal statement, in which he said, and I quote him, we are indeed sad to report that in these days, someone by the name of Eckhart from Germany, a doctor of sacred theology and a professor of the order of preachers, that's the Dominicans, wished to know more than he should, not in accordance with sobriety and the measure of faith. The man was led astray by the father of lies who often turns himself into an angel of light. And then it goes on and on and actually lists many specific passages taken from his sermons in which the Pope pronounces him to be a heretic. But Eckhart got to defend himself. And he wrote a defense which survives. His problem personally is that he died before he could actually defend himself fully at the papal court. So a cloud hung over him after he died. He said, look, if you think anything to the, to the Pope and to his, uh, those who condemned him, said, if anything seems wrong to you, my accusers, I take it back, but you know, I don't think he really understood what I was saying. So here's a, a little bit from Eckhart's defense of himself. I respond to the articles brought up against me. I'm surprised that my accusers don't bring up more objections against what I have written in my different works, for it is well known that I have written a hundred things and more. It is also well known that their ignorance neither understands nor grasps what I have said in these hundred things. As my declaration will make clear, I state and declare that I said all these things, but if there is something false I don't see in them or in my other remarks and writings, I am always ready to yield to a better understanding. But I, I, I suppose that the most important thing to bring up at this point is not that he was condemned it is that what he had to say survived and that some of his disciples made it all seem less threatening. And this is passed on. And actually all of so much of 15th and 16th and 17th century mysticism, some of the greatest mystics lived at that time, were all influenced by, the, by Eckhart. Now, I know you mentioned he passed away before he could vindicate himself. What was the final decision by the Pope or the Vatican on him? The final decision was that, you know, this, this bull was issued, but by the time that people were reading that bull, poor Eckhart was already dead. So no one who gets a papal bull written against them <laughs> actually, you know, survives unscathed. He was not directly pronounced a heretic because he said, I'm always ready to yield to a better understanding. And I, I'm always ready and eager to be of one mind with the church. So he's not declared a heretic, but with an accusation like that, you have, as I said before, a cloud surrounding you. So I assume he never achieved sainthood. No, no. In the church. No. no. And um, 
it would be difficult to propose that he be made a saint, especially because one of the ways that people become saints is that they, they have followers who write about their lives and about their many virtues and the miracles which are attributed to them. And, and, and this doesn't happen with Eckhart. However, his disciples were very successful in taking the, the kernel of his teachings, rewriting either in sermons or in theological treatises, devotional treatises, they passed it all on. This concept of the spark of the soul, this concept of going inwards, of detaching yourself from the world, and more important, one concept that we didn't really talk about all that much, this concept of the breakthrough, what happens in the breakthrough, that gets expanded on by his disciples. Now, the breakthrough you refer to, that's a breakthrough as in achieving that that connection with God. Yes. In a mystical sense. Yes. And some of the extreme statements in the sermons about the breakthrough is that when you break through, you transcend time. You enter God's eternal now moment right? Time ceases to be linear. You experience now. And it's important how this is phrased, the eternal now moment. That sounds fascinating. I'd like, I'd like to hear more about that. Yeah, well, at the eternal now moment, and this is where some of his more extreme statements uh, in his sermons come up, the eternal now moment, he says, you're there at creation. And you're there at the moment in which in the Trinity, the Son, second person of the Trinity, is begotten. So Eckhart speaks of the birth of the Son, S-O-N, in the soul. And um, some of those extreme statements point to a radical identity with the Trinity. And let me, I'm going to read a quote from one of his disciples who um, actually was more careful in the way he worded things. And that disciple is John Towler, T-A-U-L-E-R, who had this to say, to experience the working of the Trinity is better than to talk about it. And this is a sermon, okay? So he's preaching this to someone. And these sermons are very long, too. How long were those sermons back in the day? In terms is there of any record of that? Oh, yeah. Well, we know by the length of the texts that, you know, this could easily be a, an hour-long sermon. The one I'm reading from, from right now is one, two, three, four, five, six pages. So um, it's not the 10-minute, 10, 10- or 15-minute homilies where we've grown accustomed to. No, not at all. Not at all. But, you know, what he has to say about the, the Trinity's pretty radical, but more carefully worded than Eckhart. He says, you should allow the Holy Trinity to be born in the center of your soul, not by the use of human reason, but in essence and in truth, not in words, but in reality. It is the divine mystery we should seek on how we are truly its image. For this divine image certainly dwells in our souls by nature, actually, truly and distinctly, though, of course, not as in a lofty a manner as it is in itself. Nobody can express adequately its nobility, for God is in this image. Indeed, he is the image in a way that surpasses all our powers of comprehension. And this will be passed on in various different texts not just for monks and nuns, but for lay people and, and works of devotion. And, um, you know, it's really amazing. Eckhart kind of disappears from view shortly after his death, but his disciples take over. And it's, it's, it's almost like a relay race, right? He passed on the baton and, and his disciples end up winning the race, a, a relay race of sorts and actually rehabilitating him. But he lies in obscurity until the 19th century. When German unification takes place in the 19th century, you find
finally get all the different German principalities and city-states to form one nation. And there's a, a, a movement to, you know, define German culture. He is revived. Eckhart is revived. And all these sermons get printed up. And Eckhart becomes kind of a national figure, cultural figure, as well as a mystic. And he will, we don't have time to get into this, and we don't need to get into it today, but some 20th century philosophers, very, very influenced by Eckhart. But this whole idea of the eternal now moment, birth of the sun and the soul, is the most important characteristic of his mysticism to get passed on. And um, his legacy is broad and deep. And there's no denying the fact that even though he faded into obscurity, people didn't cite him, but they would cite his disciples, who were saying the same things, but just a bit more carefully. This eternal now concept, which sort of eliminates time from the equation, mm -hmm. if I understand it correctly, I imagine that's got to be the same thing that other mystics that we've spoken about in the past, uh, it's got to be the same thing they saw or experienced, which they could not put into words. St. Augustine comes to mind. Yes. Yeah. Because, you know, we can talk about seeing angelic figures. We can talk about seeing the Virgin Mary as St. Bernard did, or seeing Jesus, or a host of other things. And we can sort of as human beings, we can sort of grasp it and, and understand it. We're seeing figures, but I can't imagine living outside of time. Well, I don't that, think anybody can imagine what it's, uh, except for the mystics that have actually experienced it. I can't imagine what it's like to, to not have, right. for there being no time, for not having a watch, not seeing a, a secondhand tick, not Right, there's you know, no feeling like I've been here for a while or anything like that. It's no. it's this completely out another dimension. That's right. So how do you describe it? Well, it's impossible to describe it. I, that's why I, you know, I think to phrase it in the following way: an eternal now moment is as close as one can come to describing it. You can understand the concept, right? You can understand the concept of there being only an eternal now for God, but imagining yourself experiencing this, even when you understand the concept, you can't understand what that would be like. But you know, what's funny is that um, in the 20th century, the American novelist, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, in his novel, Slaughterhouse-Five, speaks of these aliens from another planet, from Tralpalmador, that they actually live in an eternal now moment. They don't see time as sequential. They just see all of time at, at, at once. And um, of course, a, a novelist has to use this concept as something that non-humans from some other planet can deal with. Humans have a very, very hard time dealing with it, including the character in his novel, Billy Pilgrim, who has constant episodes where, and the way that Vonnegut words it is, he gets unstuck in time. Oh, Billy got unstuck again. And Billy experiences an eternal now moment. But Vonnegut has no way of explaining how Billy feels, you know, when he's unstuck again. But Billy can uh, go backwards and forwards in time, precisely for that moment. Right? So it's a very nice science fiction concept, right? But it's also a very mystical concept. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote something, and I actually printed it out, and I framed it. I have it hanging on my office wall. And it does have to do with time, and I, and I think it's something that has helped me kind of try to understand, you know, how God works. But I'll, it's a short little passage. I'll, I'll read it. It says, Never in peace or war commit your virtue or your happiness to the future. Happy work is best done by the man who takes his long-term plans somewhat lightly and works from moment to moment. Quote, as to the Lord, unquote, it is only our daily bread that we are encouraged to ask for. And here's the last sentence is what brings it all together. He concludes with, the present is the only time in which 
any duty can be done or any grace received. Huh. Every time I read that, it's almost like it's that eternal now. I, that this is what I thought about when you when you mentioned that phrase. It's like now is the only time that you can receive anything from God, that you can give unto God anything. It's right now. It's yes. not in the future. It's not in the past. It's right now. Yeah. So this is this is help at least gives me a little bit better understanding of it, but I still can't wrap my arms around it. Well, it's, uh, you know, some astrophysicists in the last few decades have said very similar things about time and, you know, the, the way in which our universe has come into existence and how it will perhaps sometimes cease to exist as a moment, not billions or trillions of years, but an event, a single event that some astrophysicists propose keeps happening over and over again, eternally. So you can have crazy conceptions of what an eternal now moment really means. But for uh, Eckhart and for his disciples, and for those who would be affected by, by this concept, it is uh, always a disappointment to come down from that experience back into time i can imagine <laughs> oh no and what if when you come back from the eternal now moment you're already late for an appointment oh my god <laughs> double disappointment yeah because the time kept rolling while you were gone yeah and uh you know there's a beautiful poem by um t.s Eliot, the little getting where it's a very mystical poem perhaps we can you know have another segment uh, just on, on this, on how mystics write poetry and poets who are not known as mystics can write very mystical poetry. The line I'm thinking of in T.S. Eliot reminds me of this eternal now moment. Quick now, here now, ridiculous, this waste sad time before and after. Quick now, here now ridiculous the waste sad time before and after which points to the disappointment that one reads about in mystical texts disappointment voiced by the mystics that this is what we all yearn for this eternal now moment uh, augustine uh, spoke of it very differently in the last part of his confessions he has a very long meditation on time what time is Time is how time is for God and how time is for us. And actually, what Augustine says is that, and it might sound like the opposite of what Eckhart is saying, but it, it, I think it's not. Augustine says, you know, that the present doesn't exist for us humans. Because, for instance, by the time what you say the word now, or in Latin, nunc, you say now, by the time you get to the last letter, it's no longer now. It's already the past. And the future, it, we don't know. It's, it's never something you can go to. So he, Augustine says, all we have, all we humans have is our past. And, you know, that saying that you have on the wall by C.S. Lewis doesn't quite fit with what Augustine is saying. But I, I think that what Augustine is saying is he, in, in the confessions is that, of course, we humans have a very, very difficult time, an impossible time conceiving of anything that is not a constant movement in time. And the whole point is to be at rest, to be in the eternal now moment. So did Meister Eckhart ever write about the experiences? Did he ever describe the experiences nope. he had? Well, he, you know, he has, he, he, his texts are. No, cool. he alluded. Yeah. No, he alluded to them, but did he ever write them down? In his sermons, for instance, I'll give you an example. Talking about the breakthrough, he uses the singular I, first person, to explain this breakthrough. And he says, and I quote, in the breakthrough, when I come to be free of will, free of myself and of God's will and of all his works and of God himself, then I am above all created things. And I am neither God nor creature, but what I am and what I was 
and what I shall remain now and eternally. Then I receive an impulse. I receive such riches that God, as he is God, and as he performs all his divine works, cannot suffice for me. For in this breaking through, I perceive that God and I are one. Here God is one with the Spirit, and that is the most intimate poverty one can find. Seems to be speaking of a personal experience, right? But it is so abstract. One can say it's so philosophical or theological. It, it's not at all like the other mystics that one can pick up and read and have very, very detailed visions of this or that, right? Uh, with, with vivid imagery or who actually get messages or have conversations with the divine. So we're back to something that keeps coming up in our investigations here, which is that there are so many different kinds of Christian mystics whose experiences all have you know, profound similarities, but they're all different kinds of experiences. And there's a great deal of variety in, in what mystics describe. Yeah, I would imagine that everybody has a different experience. So it's not a surprise to me that these experiences, uh, even though, uh, as you mentioned, they are, they're profoundly similar, at the same time, they could be very different as far as how the mystic actually sees it. And it could also be kind of to, to throw this out there where we've discussed before, it can also be the lack of words to describe what they've seen. Yeah. Well, that's what, um, apophatic theology Dionysius back to where we started Dionysius's negative way or way of negation is to say nothing we can say will suffice. Right. You mentioned apophatic mysticism in the last episode, and I know you told us you were going to tell us a little bit about it. Can you give us a brief description? Well, it is, for instance, it's not just Dionysius, anyone, or the Hesychasts. It's anyone who admits that language fails. And, for instance, here, I'll quote Eckhart, the apophatic mystic. So I say, one should be so poor in spirit that is in will, that he should not be or have any place in which God could not work. When one clings to place, he clings to distinction. Here comes the killer, the killer line, apophatic line. Therefore, I pray to God that he may rid me of God, for my real being is above God. If we take God to be the beginning of created things. Sounds very confusing. I pray God that he may rid me of God. As I understand this, what he's praying for is that God will help him read, rid himself of whatever conception he has of God, because God is so much more than that. The God you have in your mind is not the reality. It's just a very poor approximation of the real thing. So in other words, he's trying to get rid of the concept of God that humans have and replace that with the, with real, the real concept of yes the, the real concept of god yeah and, and it, that concept is ineffable inexpressible unbelievably unlike anything humans can imagine and we keep circling back to this i think every week <laughs> every yeah time. it seems that way you know I, I always joke with my students i say you know these apophatic mystics they say you can't you can't there's nothing i can say really but then they, they write thousands of pages telling you <laughs> how it is that, gee, you know, this the words fail. <laughs> and they keep saying that in one way or another over and over and over again. Well, that was one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast with you, because I know over the years we've had a lot of conversations regarding mystics. And it really is difficult to grasp and it really is difficult to understand and maybe we don't have all the answers here but i think it's it's important that we talk about it and that we have these conversations and other people who who share this same interest can can listen 
and kind of help them shape or, or get their arms around the whole entire concept, if, if at all possible. But I think it's important that we talk about it and, and we study them and we read what they wrote so we can get a better understanding of God and the whole notion or or the whole concept of God. Right. Even though I think we'll never actually uh, attain it in this life, but well, it doesn't hurt to try. No, that's what they all say. You can't really, you know, in this life, you can't. But the whole point of every mystical text and the whole point of Christian religion is that there is more than this life. Much, much more. Eternal existence, an eternal now moment is out of our grasp at the moment. And even if you do experience it, it's only temporary. I always like to speak of mystics as the greatest optimists in human history. Their optimism, you know, for all of the self-denial and all the, what some of the horrible things that these mystics did to their own bodies, uh, despite all this, their main claim is there is so much more and we are capable of getting there. That's the ultimate optimistic message is, you know, it does, it, they put you in the grave, they put your body in the grave, it doesn't just dissolve and disappear and that's the end of you. No, there is so much more. Well, Meister Eckhart definitely gives us that spark of optimism in his teachings. So what do you have for us for the next episode? Well, we can go in many different directions backwards in time, forward in time. Uh, but there are certain individuals who kind of stand out and are still, you know, let me reword that. There are certain mystics that makes more sense to link together or to put close to each other in our presentations here. So I think next we should uh, deal with a woman mystic, Julian of Norwich, an English hermit of 14th century. She was a, a later in the 14th century than, than Meister Eckhart, but a very different kind of mystic who had visions. And, and what was revealed to her in those visions is also extremely optimistic about human nature and its potential, but it's very detailed descriptions of what was revealed to her. So Julian of Norwich ne next time. Well, that sounds extremely interesting. And she is also someone who has not been formally canonized, but many consider a saint. Well, I'm really looking forward to that episode. Thank you, Carlos, for another fascinating episode. I look forward that, to our next chat very much. Same here. And we'd like to thank all of you for listening to the Christian Mysticism Podcast. If you have any questions for Dr. Ayer, You'll find our email address in the show notes. Just send it over and we'll try to answer it in a future episode. And don't forget to click the subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode of the Christian Mysticism Podcast.